I didn't want to tell you this, Nigel, but that is the same rat who destroyed your first violin. Max moved quickly and locked his strong jaws onto the rat's tail. Don't do it! Don't draw me over to the fisherman's daughter! The rat screeched in a shrill Cockney English accent. I was just following orders, and I'm not about to let you follow any more of them! Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, Keep in mind, you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. On today's episode, we'll hear Chapter 2 from The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. And then later in Jenny's Corner, Miss Jenny asks, Where'd you come from? Of course, I'm sure she used a much nicer tone than that. I mean, you know, she, she's Jenny. Oh, good. Here come our hosts. So, as you might guess, I'm excited for you to see my progress. So, are you going with a traditional decor or perhaps with something a little more avant-garde? Well, I'm rather sentimental, you know. So, you're going with something a little more homier then, huh? Homey? <laughs> Indeed. A slice of home with a Nigelian flair, you might say. What's all this? Well, uh, today's news nuggets will be all about Nigel's newsroom. Oh, great. We're all dying to see what you've done with it. Well, of course, it's still a work in progress, you well, know. Well, sure, but well, I'm not really familiar with mouse homes. I mean, all I know is from cartoons, where you basically cut a hole in the baseboards and apparently you live in the walls, or... Really, monsieur? Cartoons? Well, I don't know. I mean, Nigel, do mice live above the ground, or do you dig tunnels in the ground like prairie dogs? Like what? Like prairie dogs. There'll be dogs living out on the prairie and nobody told me? Oui, but you see, prairie dogs are not actually dogs, Max. Well, they don't call them prairie cats, no, do they? Well, they are members of the rodent family. And so here's your host. Well, then they should be calling them prairie mice. Max? Uh, you hear that, Mousy? You got cousins out on the prairie. Uh, you'll have to be looking for them at the next family reunion, then. Nigel and Liz. I doubt very seriously that prairie dogs would attend our rodent reunions. Uh, for one, they can't get along with squirrels. Uh, who can get along with squirrels? All that chattering and such. If you ask me, squirrels be nuts. <laughs> uh, can we get back to the episode? We, oui, but at least ground squirrels, like the prairie dog, uh, hibernate in the winter, no? Right, Liz. But those blasted tree squirrels never seem to sleep. Why, once I visited Derbyshire, and this was in the dead of January, mind you. And, of course, I was exhausted from the trip, in which I nearly froze All to death. All of which has little to do with today's episode. Oh, contraire, monsieur. For, if you remember, as our story continues, the epic animals are about to deal with another type of, uh, oh, what was it? A rodent? Oh, yeah, there's a rat lurking about. Oh, aye. What do you think? We were just yapping away for no reason? Well, I... Do try to pay attention, old boy. But you were... Going somewhere without discussion. It's okay, Bashur. We forgive you. But I didn't pay close attention. No, but hey, happens to all of us, lad. No worries. But, Max, I was simply... Supposed to give us a proper introduction. We, oui, but uh, no worries, Monsieur. 
We'll handle it. Uh, I am Lise. Uh, Nigel P. Monaco here, at your service. And of course, I'm Max. Welcome, one and all. And now, bringing you today's portion of The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. Here he is. Your, uh, uh, uh narrator, uh, all, um, oh, uh, oh dear me. I seem to have forgotten the poor chap's name. Eh, happens to all of us, Mosey. No, no worries. worries. Go ahead, lad. Read. Chapter 2. Conquering Scots and Rising Tides. Off the Virginia Coast, May 1743. Land ho! A sailor cried from the crow's nest high atop the mast towering over the ship's deck. He pointed happily to the faint glimpse of land on the blue horizon as the ship's crew erupted into cheers of huzzah. The sailor smiled and gazed through his spyglass while the crew ran to the railing to view their long-awaited port of call. Finally! Max exclaimed, wagging his tail as he and Liz also peered through the railing of the ship. The sea spray tickled his nose as the ship clipped along at a brisk pace, slicing through the deep Atlantic waters toward the entrance to Chesapeake Bay. Eight weeks at sea be long enough! I couldn't agree with you more, old boy, Nigel cheered, jumping on the Scotty's back for a peek. The salty sea spray quickly covered his spectacles. Oh, bother. The little mouse put the spectacles atop his head and squinted at the horizon. I shall have to take your word for it that Virginia is indeed out there. Liz placed her dainty paw on Nigel's small form. It is Virginia, mon ami. We will soon enter Chesapeake Bay, and will then glide up the York River to make port. It is good to be back in these waters, no? Aye, Max chimed in. At least this time the humans know where they're going. When we explored all them rivers and creeks with John Smith more than a century ago, it were a never-ending journey of twisty-turning waters, he recalled. There were no gold. Just water, water everywhere. Ah, but there was gold. Just not the kind the early explorers expected, Liz suggested. The humans called this eastern area of Virginia the tide water. The water levels rise when the tide comes in, keeping the soil rich with nutrients. So while Virginia did not have the gold the first explorers thought, it had rich land that the early planters turned into gold by growing tobacco. Right you are, my dear. Riches are not always seen with the naked eye, Nigel agreed, jumping down from Max's back. He reached his paws out in front of him to wipe off his spectacles on a nearby sailor's wet breeches, uh, but to no avail. It is good to be back in these waters, and although a long ocean voyage was required, I must say I am glad we had this time at sea to study up and be prepared to meet our human subjects. We, oui. nothing thrilled me more than to learn that the Henry family originally came from my home of Normandy, France, Liz replied. To know that Patrick's ancestor invaded England with William the Conqueror and was listed in his liver de Conquerone makes me love this assignment all the more. He may have started out as a Norman who was landing in England last, but the Henrys then made their way to me home of Scotland, 
Max pointed out. Knowing the lad be good Scottish stock from Aberdeen makes me happy about this assignment, too. Nigel lifted a finger to conclude the matter, staring in a direction away from the animals, as he still couldn't see clearly. And Patrick's mother came from the Winston family line of Bristol, England. They are an ancient and honourable family that originally came from my home of Wales. So there you have it. Our human is a splendid specimen of fine French, Scottish and English bloodlines. Max winked at Liz and gave a proud, definitive nod with his large square head. The Henrys may not be rich, but they have what matters, a grand reputation in Scotland for their good sense and smarts. But, of course, this is just like I was saying about gold, no? Liz replied. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Nigel followed, quoting the next line of the proverb. He crossed his little arms over his chest with great satisfaction, unknowingly with his back to Max and Liz, who chuckled at the proper little mouse. A sailor squatted down next to them, holding out a dry handkerchief. Here, Nigel, dry your spectacles. It was Clary, now in disguise as a courier. She wore dark gray knee breeches, a red shirt, a navy blue coat, silver buckled black shoes, and a black tricorn hat. Her brown hair was pulled back in a short braid that trailed down the nape of her neck. When we disembark from the ship at Yorktown, I'll get a horse with large saddlebags so I can carry you the sixty-odd miles from the Tidewater to the back country of Hanover County. As I've shared with you, Patrick Henry's family lives on a six-hundred-acre tobacco plantation there called Studley. Ah, yes, Hanover County, so named as a sign of affection for King George I, the first ruler of the House of Hanover, Nigel noted as he cleaned his spectacles and smiled. Ah, much better. Uh, thank you, my dear. Always better to see things clearly. Clary's attention was diverted when out of the corner of her eye she saw something scurry across the deck. Her hand instinctively went to her pocket. I couldn't agree more, she told her small friend. Now then, let us review the society that has grown up since we first helped the humans to found this colony. Virginia has three classes of citizens, following the English model, upper, middle, and lower class. Of course, Virginians view this as terribly proper and quite natural to accept one's station in life, Nigel explained, pacing about the deck and twirling his paw in the air for emphasis. The upper class is made up of aristocrats with wealth and prestige, who are well-educated, well-connected, and quite the polished gentlemen and ladies. They own most of the land and hold positions of power in this new world. In the 1600s, they were the ones who developed expansive plantations in the Tidewater of Virginia. Ergo, they are known as the Tidewater Elite. We. Oui. They are the fancy humans with luxurious tastes in clothes, possessions, and lifestyles, added Liz. The middle class also own land, but are merchants, planters, tradesmen, artisans, and the like. Uh, they make up half the people in Virginia, and have many different personalities, 
interests, and habits. I believe this variety makes them far more interesting humans to be around. Aye, and far more fun instead of those stuffy, puffed-up types, Max added. So who's on the bottom rung of the ladder? The lower class is made up of those who do not own property. They are laborers, tradesmen apprentices, and indentured servants who sell themselves as workers for several years in order to gain passage to America, Liz answered. And with which group will we find Patrick Henry? Max wanted to know. Right in the middle, old boy. In Hanover we shall find quite the rugged, less refined sort of dwellers on the edge of Virginia's frontier. They are the proud Scots-Irish, from the rugged regions of Britain's empire. I dare say I expect that Patrick's middle-class family will be more like the common people of the region rather than the refined, wealthy, tidewater elite in Williamsburg. The Tidewater aristocrats have long held positions of power in governing the colony of Virginia, and I'm afraid do not properly appreciate those uh, not of their kind. Uppity English types, Max huffed. Uh, no offence, Mousy. We saw those same types given handle a hard time in London. No offence taken, old boy, Nigel replied. Unfortunately, the British have long held the upper hand over the people of the Scottish and Irish dominions, and uh, never seem to let them forget it. While this is true, Clary explained to me that John and Sarah Henry have made a strong name for themselves in Hanover, Liz pointed out. Well, they are not the fancy, tidewater elite sort of people— for their rural society, you could say they are regarded as the upper class of their middle-class world. Sarah's ancestors were the frontier farmers who conquered the backwoods on the northern edge of the Tidewater and rose to become the highly intelligent, influential leaders in that rugged region. Her family has owned vast amounts of land and held positions of importance in the area for generations. They are educated and musically and socially inclined, so John was well received when he arrived from Scotland with his solid background from King's College, no? That's right, Liz, agreed Clary. John has become one of Hanover's most influential men. He is the Chief Justice of the County Court, Colonel of the Militia, and a vestryman of the Church of England, so he is very well connected. Yet he started with very little. He came over from Scotland to help his friend and fellow Scotsman, John Syme, to manage studly and to survey the land. Tobacco is Virginia's most important crop, but it gobbles up the nutrients in the soil every few years, so planters are always in search of new land. And those who find the land get the first chance to snatch it up and hopefully make money when it sells. John Henry started out well, but sadly, John Syme died after only a few short years. Happily, however, John Henry then married Mr. Syme's widow, Sarah. So, that's how John came to own Studley and became a tobacco planter? Max asked. Does he have a green thumb like you do, Liz? No, according to Clary, he unfortunately has not been a huge success as a planter and has not chosen the best of overseers to help him run the plantation. But John Henry does provide for the needs of his growing family, Liz said. Patrick has two older brothers and several little sisters. 
John is first and foremost a scholar, so it has been hard for him to try to be a success as a planter, Nigel added. As we have seen with humans across time, it is important for them to find the thing they most enjoy and that the maker created them to do. Hmm. If Patrick is to have a voice that speaks of important things, he first must learn of important things. Perhaps we can help father and son, Liz thought out loud. Perhaps I can find a way to encourage John to pour his superior education into Patrick so he is well-grounded, no? Well, first things first, lass, Max said, wagging his tail as the ship entered the mouth of the Chesapeake, giving a view of land and ships of all sizes sailing toward the York River. Let's get our paws well-rounded on land, then. I am ready to get off this ship. That's when Max saw something scurry across the deck near where they were gathered at the railing. A low growl entered his throat. I just saw a rat. Clarie nodded. We're being stalked. I didn't want to alarm you before now, but that rat has been following us since London. He is after David Henry's letter. Rats? Nigel exclaimed as he grimaced and shivered. How revolting! Clary frowned. I didn't want to tell you this, Nigel, but that is the same rat who destroyed your first violin. Nigel's eyes widened with disgust. His cheeks puffed, and his whiskers quivered as he balled his paws into angry fists. If I get my paws on that, that evil vermin, I will, will... But Nigel was at a loss for words. Steady, Mousie, Liz told him as she spied the pair of red eyes staring at them from a darkened space between two barrels. Her fur rose on end and her tail switched back and forth. Clary, what should we do with this stalker? I say let me handle this before we get off the ship, Max growled, running to the barrels and sniffing around. I see you in there, wee rat. How dare you think about coming after us after what you did to Mosey's fiddle? Clarice stood and stretched out her back, extending a calm hand to the eager Scotty. Be my guest, Max. With that, Max growled and barked wildly at the barrels, scratching at the wood and pushing his large head into the small opening between them. The small brown rat came darting out under his belly, but Max moved quickly and locked his strong jaws onto the rat's tail. Don't do it! Don't draw me over to the fisherman's daughter! The rat screeched in a shrill Cockney English accent. I was just following orders, and I'm not about to let you follow any more of them! Max kept his jaws clenched as he made his way to the railing. We know you're up to no good. You've been following us since London, but this be where you get off. Max proceeded to hurl the rat over the side of the ship. Good riddance, you vile beastie. Well done, mon ami, Liz exclaimed as the rat went flying through the air and splashed into the white sea foam of the ship's wake. Nigel punched Max in the shoulder with an appreciative jab. Good show, old boy. I shall be forever in your debt. He then turned to Clary. Why didn't you tell us about the vile beast, my dear? Clary took off her tricorn hat and wiped the sweat from her brow. There was no need. I knew what he was up to, and it only would have made for a more difficult voyage for you. 
There will always be rats out to ruin things. But remember, even when they do, the Maker always turns their bad around for our good. She reached into her pocket and lifted out Nigel's tiny violin with a grin. Nigel clasped his paws behind his back and smiled. As much as I relished seeing that revolting creature flying through the air, especially after what he did to my violin, I must admit that you are right. If he hadn't destroyed my first violin, I never would have had the far grander instrument in your hand, made from the most priceless of objects. Liz put her paw on Nigel's back. This is true, no? And whenever the enemy tries to destroy something or someone, it is always because he feels threatened. This must mean that David Henry's letter will inspire my Henry in ways we do not yet realize. Keep a watchful eye. There will always be other rats to take the last rat's place, Clary warned, looking around them on the ship. Rats of all shapes and sizes and species. Aye, Max agreed with a nod. He spied the tiny rat bobbing on the waves in the growing distance behind the ship. Rats can swim a half a mile and tread water for three days, so at least this beastie will be kept busy while we deliver that letter. It certainly was a load-off to leave that fiend in our wake. Uh, my hat's off to you, Max, old boy. Uh, Twa'n't nothing. I can't stand rats. Uh, right. Well, then, if you need me, I shall be in my newsroom, and again, I invite you both to drop by and see how I've given the decor that personal touch. Ah, Twabian, we shall be over too sweet. Now, Max, I know what you mean about that rat. Ugh. But uh, our dear friend Nigel is a great example to us that not all rodents are uh, rotten. Well, okay, that is one way to say it. But I was thinking more along the lines of uh, distasteful. Whereas Nigel is full of grace, uh, refinement, and culture. Aye, good point. Mousy be pretty spit and polished then, without the spit. Ha, <laughs> uh, uh, oui, Max, well said. That was rather eloquent as well. Oh, no, it weren't. No, you're right. Uh, but that reminds me, Mousy's wanting us to come see his studio, so come on. Ah, there you are. Come in, come in, welcome, welcome, and please take a gander at my humble yet illuminating abode. Oh, Nigel, this is just... uh... interesting. Hey, Mousy, what happened? Here is really quite amusing. <laughs> yes, it is coming along, uh, uh, work in progress and all. What do you think so far, my pet? Oh, well, there are no words that can do it justice. Oh, well, you're too kind, I'll say. Oh, uh, I mean, I'll say this. I didn't think a newsroom would ever need so much uh, string and uh, uh, fuzzy stuff. Well, that is simply part of the decor, my boy. Uh, feng shui, you know. It uh, doesn't actually serve any purpose. I can certainly agree with that. Uh, well, uh, merci, Nigel, for the quick tour. Uh, aye, lad. Uh, keep up the uh, good effort. Uh, working hard there, lad, huh? Well, sit down for a bit, then. I'll put on no! some... No! Uh, that is, uh, well, Jenny's Corner awaits. Oui, oui, Jenny's Corner, bien sûr. Oh, of course. Where are my priorities? Uh, probably under that pile of... Max! 
Uh, let's head to Jenny's Corner, uh, uh, Miss Jenny. Liz, what's on your brilliant mind today? Uh, not very much. Uh, perhaps you have a question for us this time around. Hmm? Do you know where you came from? Your family history? Unless you're a Native American Indian and you live in the United States today, guess what? You didn't come from America. <laughs> Likely, your family came from somewhere in Europe or the Middle East or Africa or somewhere else. But it's important to know your story. All of us are a melting pot of multiple people who somehow got here to America. And my grandmother always said, in order to know where you're going, you have to know where you've been. And it's good to know the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly of your lineage. What got you here? Because that should serve as an inspiration to where you go from here and what dream you pursue in this incredible nation of America that is the catalyst and the place where liberty, no matter how you got here, can be achieved. And so in this chapter on Patrick Henry, I wanted to show you how the Henry family got to America. But as you see, it wasn't just from Scotland. His lineage goes back to Normandy. And this is one of the things that I loved learning about Patrick Henry because I share similar geographical ancestry. My family, I have family from Scotland, but my family originated in Normandy. And I'll tell you a couple of stories. One was a knight who fought with William the Conqueror in 1066 in the Battle of Hastings. So he left France, fought in this battle. His name was Montalon. It became Maitland, the Earls of Lauderdale. In fact, there's our family castle is Thurlston Castle that you can go see today. I haven't been there. I got to go. So that's great fun. But I have even been to his village in France, in Normandy, Montalon. I've been to the family chapel there. So that was just an incredible thing to see. I had another ancestor from Normandy, the Brion. Now, Liz's name, and of course she comes from Normandy, is Lisette Briant. And that is a wink back to my lineage. My ancestors were French Huguenots, and they were suffering from religious persecution. I mean, they were being killed. And so they had to flee France, and they came over to America, and they settled near Charleston, and Brion became Bryant. So they had a hard struggle to get here. Another ancestor was named Plykert Dietrich Sailor, S-A-I-L-E-R, and he was a shepherd in Germany. My uncle actually found his baptismal records in the Lutheran church in Germany. But in 1743, which is the same year this chapter is taking place, he heard of this great country called America, and he wanted to come see if he could pursue his dream here. Well, he didn't have enough money for the passage, so he sold himself to become an indentured servant to get passage over here. He left on a ship called Two Sisters, fell in love with the captain's daughter on the way over. When he landed in America, he was sold to a merchant up north, worked seven years, worked off his indenture, married the girl, and moved to North Carolina. Now, his last name, Sailor, I don't know if it was a typo or what happened, became Siler, S-I-L-E-R, and he founded Siler City, North Carolina. So it's a rich thing to know what got you here 
to America? And what are you going to do in this nation of freedom that is the most free place on earth to pursue the dream, to use the gifts that you've been given and the passions? You can do anything that you set out to do within the freedom of this great country. So ask your parents, where did we come from? How did we get here? And then decide what legacy are you going to leave for your descendants? Oh, that was fascinating. And some very thought-provoking questions too, Miss Jenny. Hey, she gave us a lot to chew on then. But then, finding things to chew on has never been a difficulty for you, old boy. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> you know me too well then, Mousy. But of course, she made a very good point as well. You may be listening today thinking, but I am too young to have a legacy, to make la différence. Well, you might be surprised. Right, Monsieur Annoncer? Oh, oui, madame. For in the next episode, we'll meet a young lad, probably even younger than you, a boy of only seven years old, who will already be showing signs of his future greatness, even though they may not be obvious at first glance. You'll see what I mean on our next episode. See you then. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandee! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.